0: All right, well, today we are going to be jumping into Mark chapter 10. But before we do that, I want to go back and review the two chapters before that, Mark chapter 8 and Mark chapter 9. And it's taken us a little while to get through Mark 8 and 9. There is a lot in those chapters, so I think we would do well going back to review them. And I want to first start with the beginning of Mark, the beginning of Mark chapter 8, uh, begins with the feeding of the 4,000. Now, thinking back, what sets apart this feeding of the 4,000 from the previous feeding of the 5,000?
1: The location?
0: hmm And what was the difference in the, lo- the location?
1: Um, like, if, um, Jewish people live not Gentile.
0: Yeah, good. Yeah, so the feeding of the 5,000 took place in a predominantly Jewish area, feeding of the 5,000, or 4,000 rather, took place in a predominantly Gentile area. And why is that significant? Obviously the the group that Jesus was ministering to, those who were uh, there partaking of the food and the teaching, they would have been of those different ethnicities. But why is that important that Jesus was first with the Jews in the feeding of the 5,000, then with the Gentiles in the 4,000? Because God's promises get extended to the Gentiles. Okay, good. Yeah, so uh, Romans 1.16, right, where Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and then for the Gentile. So going back into the Old Testament in uh, Genesis, God made his covenant, his promise with Abraham, right? In Genesis 12 and 15, 17, 22, uh, he told Abraham that I'm going to make you into a great nation. But then he said, uh, through you, uh, through your descendants, all the nations will be blessed. And so, yeah, we see this expansion of the, the message that was first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Uh, Isaiah 49, talking about how God said, it is too small a thing for me just to save and redeem the nation of Israel. Which is, of course, a massive thing that he would be fulfilling this promise that he had made to Abraham hundreds of years before but he says no that that's too small i'm going to expand it i'm going to uh, reach out to the nations and embrace the nations as my own so yes we started off with the feeding of the the four thousand in the beginning of mark chapter 8 and then immediately following that we see the the pharisees ask for a sign as if jesus taking uh, a, a couple of fish and a couple of loaves and feeding 4,000 men, besides women and children, so likely closer to fifteen, twenty thousand 20,000 people. That's not enough. So they said, Jesus, give us a sign. And Jesus rebukes them and says, you know what? It's an evil and adulterous generation who seeks after a sign. And uh, Jesus, after rebuking the Pharisees, he warns the disciples. He pivots and turns to the disciples and says, you guys need to watch out. You need to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And what does the response of the disciples in Chapter eight, verses sixteen through twenty-one, reveal to us when Jesus says, "Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees." They don't quite respond how um, maybe they should have. What does their response tell us? They still don't understand. They still don't. Think. Yeah, they're they're still not getting it, right? About Yeah. <laughs> where's the food what yeah we've, we forgot the bread so maybe he's upset with us for forgetting the bread right they're just on a, a different level it's not clicking with them they're still spiritually blind and uh jesus points that out to him over and over again wraps it up in verse 21 saying you do you not yet understand that's kind of the the gist of uh these many questions that he asked following up to them are you still blind or do you have ears and you don't hear what, what's going on why why is that it clicking He says, do you still not yet understand? I've been with you all this time. We're in chapter 8 of Mark. I'm sure that's exactly what he said. We're in chapter 8, and you don't get it, right? Um, They're still blind. Uh, And then, uh, shortly after that, we see this, or immediately after that, rather, we see this illustrated with this two-stage healing of this blind man, right? The only time we see this two-stage healing throughout the Gospels. And this is... illustrative of they're not getting it they have a a greater understanding of who Jesus is than the scribes or the Pharisees but they're still not getting it Um, they're seeing Jesus as a a blind man who has his vision halfway restored Uh, he sees men but they're walking around like trees kind of thing right and then Jesus ultimately restores this man's vision and then uh, right on the heels of that we see this great spiritual breakthrough uh, this moment of insight where Peter has this great confession, he cries out, "You are the Christ, you are the Son of the living god uh, he He gets it right this amazing confession he 's speaking on behalf of all the other disciples, and then uh, he turns around and immediately he he messes up, he has this uh, untimely uh, rebuke of Jesus right, and then Jesus will Ultimately, insightfully rebuke Peter, uh, harkening back to when Satan was first trying to prevent Jesus from going to the cross. Remember, that's not what Satan wanted. He was trying to tempt Jesus, trying to give him a shortcut so he wouldn't go to the cross. He wouldn't achieve salvation for the world. Um, and Jesus now turns to Peter and he says, you know what? Get behind me, Satan. Don't try to prevent me from going to the cross. I see exactly what you're doing. Same thing Satan did to me back in the wilderness. Get behind me. Well, then, Jesus went on to explain after that that following after him doesn't just entail a a simple declaration. It's not just pray this prayer after me, not just raise your hand and you can be my disciple. He says, no, if you want to be my disciple, uh, you need to truly follow after me. So in verses 34 and 35 of Mark 8, it says that he summoned the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. So, again, he's saying, it's not just a a matter of saying, yeah, I'm in, or just a matter of raising your hand. He says, no, you need to take up your cross. You need to follow after me. And then at the beginning of verse or beginning of chapter 9 and verse 1, we have this interesting verse. and says that Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So how is it that we are to explain the words of Jesus in this verse without taking him to be some kind of liar? How should we understand chapter 9 verse 1?
1: But it was Peter, James, and John, and they got a glimpse of the kingdom.
0: And in what way did they get a glimpse of the kingdom?
1: When they saw Jesus transfigured. All right, good. They saw a glimpse of the extent of his holiness.
0: Yes, perfect. So they did, in fact, see Jesus coming in his splendor, in his glory, uh, giving a, a preview to the ultimate splendor and ultimate glory that he will have when he physically comes and returns and establishes his kingdom here on earth and yeah it was just a few of those who were standing there it says some of those who are standing here will not taste death until they do and the others of course they they didn't get that experience they didn't see the transfiguration that expires in the the coming that transpires not expires that transpires in the the coming verses and then after that or i guess kind of Within that, we talked about the relationship of John the Baptist with Elijah and how those uh, two figures work together. The interrelationships there. Uh, we witnessed Jesus casting out the the demon from the boy of the the father who had faith, the father who cried out to Jesus, "Yes, I, I believe, but help my unbelief." Right? We're going to sing a song with that lyric in it this morning, um, and we see that in verse twenty four where. It says, Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe, but help my unbelief. I mean, you can just see the, the transparency there that he's just trying to figure it out. Yeah, I, I believe, but I'm not there. And, and I'm just humble and, and meek. And Jesus help me, right? That's a, a beautiful little snippet into uh, the mind of this boy's father. And going on from there, Jesus continued to prepare the disciples for his death. So remember, that's what led up to Peter rebuking Jesus. Jesus had revealed to him, oh, well, the Son of Man, he has to uh, suffer and die, and three days later he's going to rise again. And Peter thought, no, oh, Lord, no. And that's when he got rebuked. Well, this revelation of Jesus' coming death is uh, an ongoing thing. And we see that again in verse 31. It says, for he was teaching his disciples and telling them, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask. Uh, Excuse me. All right. And then it was immediately after this that Jesus took took a child, and he placed a a child before his disciples. And what lesson was Jesus seeking to, to illustrate with this child? This is just a couple of weeks ago now, so this is more recent. So. Yeah,
1: our dependence. Okay, yeah.
0: okay good. Yeah, that um, we are just like children, right? And it says in verse 35, Sitting down, he called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. That we need to not elevate ourselves, but we need to put ourselves uh, below. And taking child, he set them before him, um, yeah, and he said, whoever receives a child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me but him who sent me. And then uh, last week, we looked at the instruction, the very uh, harsh and, and shocking instruction uh, concerning our hands and our feet and our eyes, right? And Jerry, very insightfully told everybody, well, raise your hands and, and look up at me. Everybody's got your hands and your eyes What are we doing here? Are we not fulfilling the words of Jesus in this verse? So how ought we to understand Jesus' instructions concerning hands and feet and eyes in verses 43 through 48? If we're showing up this morning, even after uh, last week's teaching, we all have our, our hands, feet, and eyes. What was Jesus getting at? How should we understand those verses?
1: Anything
0: else come before your eyes seeking after God first? Good. Yeah, so very applicable, right? Uh, of course, Jesus was being hyperbolic. He was speaking in exaggeration. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't have any body parts left because we are <laughs> sinful beings through and through. Uh, we are utterly depraved, right? Mind, body, and soul. And um, so Jesus was saying sin is serious, right? And what we're, we really need to do about sin is we need to take quick, decisive action with our sin. We need to make sure that we are in a right relationship with God, uh, focusing on the heart, focusing on our uh, inner self, right? Because it's out of the, the heart, out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. So we have to first consider the, the root cause of our wicked hearts. All right. He did say, he did say if your hand not our hands and our feet or our eyes that cause us to sin is our inner person. Amen. And we don't have the means of cutting that off. Yep. Yeah, it needs to be circumcised by God Himself, right? He needs to give us a new heart, take our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Yes? I
1: could, every time I see this verse, I think about when we saw them with their little kids. Did you know be careful little eyes what you, you see. Yeah. Be where you go, ends what you do, and yeah. it's yeah.
0: You should have sang that for us last week. (laughs) That's okay. We're here. We got time. (laughs) We, I don't know how much time we actually have, but (laughs) uh, are there any any thoughts or questions on chapters eight and nine before we jump into chapter ten? That's a lot. There, we've been over a lot. Forty nine and fifty, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. How should we understand those verses? What is the the point that Jesus is getting at? What is the, the purpose of, of salt? of flavor right and uh, yeah to preserve good and uh, Jerry made ties back to uh, the Sermon on the Mount is it Matthew 5 or 7 somewhere in, it's Matthew 5 talking about being salt and light to the world and so yes that is a high calling is there a verse that talks about
1: your have your words be like salt that people will receive it give it
0: Labor so they'll receive it well. But it's, isn't there Is that right. James 3? Maybe? Um, I'm not sure. But James 3 it, talks about. I know sometimes I just don't say things well. I say them too bluntly. And so
1: it's a bit And yeah, that, that I would have the grace of God to say things
0: well, that it would be received and not. Yes. Yeah, I know that. Brittany was talking about that yesterday at the women's Bible study about being gentle and um, meek and last week after my sermon Greg came up to me and he said, really? Raccoon eyes? Really? That's... <laughs> you, you pointed out somebody's uh, raccoon style makeup uh, so I'm, I'm right there with you. It was a foolish statement that I made and uh, I wish that was the only one but no. All right, well, let's jump into chapter 10. And I'll go ahead and read the first four verses for us as we uh, get started and set the scene here. It says, Getting up, he, Jesus, went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. So it starts off from the beginning of the chapter. It says, Getting up, he went from there. Any idea where there is? Where we've been uh, geographically up until this point? most. Yeah, good. So back in 933, most recently they were in a house in Capernaum. It said that they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he began to question them. So I'll throw up our map on the screen. And I had to condense it a little bit more even than it was. I know it's hard to see, but you guys should sit closer and then you'd be able to see the map a lot easier. Um, So up at the, the top of the map. you can see Capernaum. It's up in the region of Galilee by the Sea of Galilee. And he traveled south from Capernaum. It says in our text that he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. So again, we're, we're up here in Capernaum. That's where Jesus had been. He went from there to... Judea. Judea is all the way down here at the bottom of the map. That's why I had to compress it so much so that you guys could have that on the screen. And that's where Jerusalem was. Remember that Mark's gospel, it's all pointing toward Jerusalem. He's telling a story, uh, painting a picture of Jesus making his way to the cross at Jerusalem. Well, the text says that he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan over to the Transjordan. What do we remember about this Transjordan area over here on the right side of our screen? Any details pop out from our previous teachings?
1: Is it more gentile area?
0: Yes, good. So this area is more gentile populated, also uh, north up like over here would be kind of where that heater vent is <laughs> on the left side. Or the, not the heater vent, that's not a heater, it's an air conditioner vent. Um, that area is also more Gentile population. Um, and then, but he's, we've dealt a lot with the Decapolis before in our, our teachings. That's where the, the man who was possessed with the legion of demons, he was there. The Decapolis, the 10 Gentile cities there. But Jesus now, he's going to this area farther to the south. Uh, Perea is where he's going to be ministering in the in this chapter, in chapter ten. And uh, Mark doesn't really spend too much time on uh, his ministry in this area in Judea. However, Luke gets into it quite a bit. Luke speaks about Jesus' ministry in Judea from chapters ten to eighteen of his gospel. Uh, John also, from John seven to eleven deals with Jesus' Judean ministry. But once again, Mark just kind of skips over this. Mark has a a different point in mind. He's pointing to the cross, trying to get us to uh, what Jesus' ultimate goal is in going to the cross. Now, this area, this region of Perea, it also happens to be the territory of Herod Antipas. We talked about him a little bit before. What do we remember about Herod Antipas? He's the only Herod that we've really dealt with in our study so far. Oh, you're getting really deep. We did get into his genealogy, but who did he have an interaction with in the Gospels? Just a couple of chapters before. Was it John? Yes, it was John the Baptist, right? And they were good buddies, weren't they?
1: Well, he loved hearing him speak.
0: He did love hearing him speak. So they were maybe kind of buddies. Good buddies is definitely overselling it, right? Because he chopped off his head, right? Now remind me, why did John the Baptist have his head chopped off by Herod Antipas? What was the, what was leading up to this? Yes. Yeah, so that was the, the means that it came about through, the the promise to his stepdaughter and her, uh, gross dance before him and his party, but yeah, it was a, a matter of divorce because John had called out Herod for his relationship with Herodias, his sister-in-law. Right, uh, he had taken his brother Philip's wife as his own. She had divorced her husband, gotten with John, or not John with Herod, and John had called them out on that relationship. And uh, even after that point, Herod, he still liked to hear him talk. It didn't seem to affect him quite as much as it affected Herodias. But Herodias, she definitely took insult to John calling her out and uh, highlighting her sin and letting her know that what she did was wrong. And it ultimately ended up with his head being cut off and his death. So we need to keep that in the back of our minds as we continue throughout our uh, text. This morning in chapter 10. So, uh, looking again at our text, we see that Jesus is now in this new region, this region that is overseen by Herod Antipas. uh, And it says at the beginning of, or at the end rather, of verse 1 that he once again began to teach them according to his custom. So, we have to continually remind ourselves that this was a purpose for which Jesus came. He came to preach, he came to teach. And I think we can get lost sometimes thinking okay well he came for these these miracles he came to cast out demons he came to make bread pop up out of nowhere because that's a lot of what we're getting throughout the gospels because that's evidence of his deity that he is in fact God in the flesh uh, but we also see all throughout these less exciting reminders that he came to preach and to teach and I just want to look at one of these cross references I put them up there for you you can see that in uh, chapter 1, verse 14, 21 and 22, 38, he's teaching. Chapter 2, verse 13, he's teaching. 4, 1 and 2, teaching. Six, two, six, thirty-four, 34, teaching. Chapter eleven, twelve. all these chapters, Jesus is teaching. Well, looking back just at the, we will just look at a couple here in chapter 1. It says in verse 21, that when they come to Caper- Capernaum, immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he began to Teach. And they were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. And then a little bit later on, uh, Peter comes to get Jesus and tells him, hey, people are looking for you and they want you to come and heal some people. Um, but uh, Jesus said, no, let's go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came for. So constantly reminding them uh, that His purpose was to teach and to preach, even though he was doing these other things along the way. And so even here in chapter 10, it says that as his custom, uh, he was once more, he once more began to teach them. And then we see that Mark reveals uh, the, not just the fact that the Pharisees come up and they question him, but he even reveals the intention behind the Pharisees' question. And so we see in verse 2, some of the Pharisees came up to Jesus testing him and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. So it's not just as if they're asking this innocent question, hey, what about divorce? Is that okay? No, they came up testing him. They're seeking to to trap him, to um, to get him caught up, right? And we've seen this before, all the way back in chapter 3, verse 6, it says that the Pharisees began conspiring with the conspiring with the Herodians the uh, those who were Greek against Jesus about how they might come and destroy him. And that's still their, their motive. That's what they want to do. They, they don't like Jesus. They've already decided whose team they're on and they're coming now to test him before the people. They're not a, a neutral, unbiased group. Uh, they have an agenda and that agenda is showing through loud and clear. And uh, in the the question um, in verse 2, is it lawful for a man to divorce a wife? Matthew, in his account, he adds, uh, for any reason. So, is it lawful for any reason for a man to to come and to divorce his wife? And just as their biased agenda uh, shouldn't surprise us at this point in Mark's gospel, uh, we also shouldn't be surprised by Jesus' response and so what is familiar about the way that Jesus responds to this loaded question that the Pharisees present him with? He responds with a question. Perfect. Jesus responds to their question with a question. That's just common Jesus, right? He, he's always doing that, trying to uh, draw out the intention behind the question. He's trying to get deep and, and get them to be a little bit more introspective and uh, contemplate, okay, well what is it that I'm really asking and getting to the heart of the issue, which Jesus was, of course, great at. And so Jesus, in asking this question, we shouldn't take him and and understand him as being unaware of what they're doing. He knows full well what they're doing. He knows that um, they have baited the hook and he is he's willing to take a nibble at that bait, right? But he's not going to, full-on bite the hook. He's not going to, to let them draw him in. He's just going to nibble at it and, and let them lose their bait, right? He's going to turn the tables on them, so to speak. And so Jesus doesn't ask what their opinion is, notice. He doesn't ask, uh, give, me, give me the opinion of some scribe, some famous rabbi. Tell me what they think about divorce. No, he points them back to Scripture, and he says, what does Moses say about this what does moses command about divorce and so just like in our culture their culture would have uh, a tendency to uh, want to to answer this question in a way that is culturally appropriate right and they're they're we're we're all humans and we're good at, at dancing around and at at politicking and playing the game so that we can not offend people well Jesus says no we have to be directed by scripture and not by culture don't worry about what the next rabbi says don't worry about what uh, your, your sister or brother or neighbor say let's go back to the text of scripture let's see what Moses says about this whole issue of divorce and so look at your your side notes or um, your, your footnotes in verse 4 what is the the cross reference for verse four when uh, the Pharisees give Jesus an answer? What are they referring back to in the Old Testament? In
1: Deuteronomy.
0: In Deuteronomy what?
1: Twenty four one
0: through four. All right, Deuteronomy twenty four one through four. Let's go ahead and turn there and see what that text has to say about divorce. So Jesus asks them a question, and they answer by going to Deuteronomy and um, so we should likewise go to Deuteronomy. I don't remember if I put this on my slide or not so I'm going to go ahead and turn there with you and perhaps it might show up on our screen. I've forgotten what I have done in preparation. Alright, so we need to uh, look at Deuteronomy 24 1 through 4 and nope Oh, nope, it's not up on my screen. So we'll go ahead and read this together. But as we're reading it, uh, let's look for any command that we might read in this section. Because remember, Jesus said, what did Moses command you? And their answer was, well, he permitted us to have a divorce, right? So Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Will somebody else read that for us? All right, thanks, Jim.
1: When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found someone, because he has found some uncleanliness in her, he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then her former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, For it is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance.
0: Perfect, thank you. All right, so looking... In those four verses, what is the command that we see regarding divorce? That
1: they can do it.
0: Where do you see that in there? Put it in her hand, send her out of the house. If the second guy isn't happy with her, he can put it in her hand and send her out of the house. Well, let's, let's look at it. So he starts off in verse 1. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her. And happens, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house. So he's kind of giving a scenario here. He's saying that when a man takes a wife and it happens that. So he's kind of presenting a, a scenario that if this scenario takes place, when this happens, um, he's not there commanding something to take place. He's presenting uh, a a possibility, again, a scenario. And then he goes on, he says, uh, continuing on with this scenario, he says, and she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce, continuing on with this scenario. So not only uh, is there one man involved, but there's now another. And he puts it in her hands and sends her out of his house or if the latter husband dies who took her as his wife, then the former husband who took her away is not allowed. So there we see some uh, language of permission, right? Of what is allowed or commanded. So he's saying one man sends away a a wife because of some indecency. And we'll see that that's an important clause there that we need to really dig in and figure out what does that mean, this indecency. So if one man sends his wife away and she... Is married to another man. They they're shacked up together. Uh, the first man can't come and say, "Hey, you know what? I actually kind of I kind of miss you. Come on back." He says, "No, that's not okay. That's not that's not permitted. That's not allowed. Uh, that's where the command comes into place because he says that she has been defiled. This is an abomination before the Lord. Uh, so we need to look and understand what the the cultural understanding was of. This important phrase, some indecency, in verse one of Deuteronomy 24. So, um, let's look at what the the rabbis of the day were teaching, even before Jesus' day. What it says in the Mishnah, and this is from Mishnah Gittin 9.10. And we're going to look at three different rabbis and their responses here. It says that Rabbi Shemai says. That a man may not divorce his wife unless he finds out about her having engaged in a matter of forbidden sexual intercourse, i.e., she committed adultery or suspected of doing so, as it is stated, because he has found some unseemly matter in her, and he writes her a scroll of severance. So that unseemly matter is the same uh, understanding of this indecency that is within her. So, Rabbi Shemai, he's more conservative. He says, no, the only way you can get a divorce is if she goes off and she commits adultery with somebody else. Then you can write her a a letter or a certificate of divorce. Well, let's see what uh, this next rabbi says. Rabbi Hillel, who was really popular in Jesus' time, he had died just 40 years before Jesus, he says that he may divorce her even due to a minor issue, e.g. because she burned or oversalted his dish as it is stated, because he has found some unseemly matter in her, meaning that he found any type of shortcoming in her. Notice they're both referencing this same verse, right? Deuteronomy 24, 1. The one says, nah, if she goes off and she's shacking up with some dude, yeah, go ahead and leave her. And this guy says, no, if she salts her food wrong, then you have grounds for divorce. Because after all, that's, that's an indecency, right? Because that's that's shameful that she has... Salted your food That She has come short in, in whatever issue you see. Well, let's look at another rabbi. Rabbi Akiva says that he may divorce her even if he found another woman who is better looking than her and wishes to marry her, as it is stated in the verse, and it comes to pass if she finds no favor in his eyes. Deuteronomy 24, 1. All these rabbis pointing to the same verse, taking completely different understandings of it, Uh, saying even if you find a better looking woman, you can go ahead and you can write a certificate of divorce for that first woman. And so that is not at all what uh, Moses was saying. Again, the command in that section was if a man writes a woman a certificate of divorce, then he can't go back and say, oh, you know what, that that first woman that I thought was better looking, uh, she salted my dish wrong, so I I can put up with uh, a little bit of a a lesser-looking woman for a better-tasting male, so I'll take you back. Um, No, that's not okay, right? These understandings are just so grotesque and so wrong. So let's go back to Mark, and let's see uh, where Jesus takes this conversation, having established a little bit of an understanding of where they were culturally for that day. Now, um, remember that uh, this isn't... God's idea for divorce, right? God hates divorce. Malachi 2.17 says that God hates divorce. So uh, divorce was never in God's plan. It was never God's idea. It wasn't even Moses' idea back in Deuteronomy 24. But uh, it was his response to the fact that people were writing each other certificates of divorce. And even though the Pharisees were trying to play it off as if Moses had... um, come up with this idea. It was never Moses' idea to begin with. He merely responded to the reality uh, that people were getting divorces. So Moses didn't mandate divorce. He merely regulated divorce. Uh, it wasn't his idea. He was just stepping in and uh, telling people how it should not be done. And Jesus isn't about to um, let the the Pharisees palm this problem off on Moses. He sets them straight, and he seeks to reorient their thinking on the sanctity of marriage. He seeks to put them in their uh, place when it comes to what marriage is and the purpose of marriage. And so he takes them all the way back to Genesis. And Matthew actually reports that Jesus starts off this next section by saying, Have you not read? Which I kind of take as a little bit of an insult. He's speaking to these Pharisees who are the religious leaders and he's saying, you guys should know, right? He told them, uh, I don't know if it was before this or after, at some point Jesus uh, said that um, you guys, you'll go out and you'll look up at the sky and you'll see that the sky is red and you'll know, okay, well that means that the weather tomorrow is going to be great and yet they don't know uh, the, the signs of the times. They're not understanding who Jesus is. They're really not clicking so he says, according to Matthew, have you not read? It says in verse uh, six, well, actually I skipped verse five, didn't I? So verse five says, but Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So just pointing out that this wasn't Moses' plan. Uh, This was the hardness of the hearts of men that caused Moses to respond by regulating divorce. Then in verse six, uh, pairing it with Matthew's account, have you not heard? But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And there he's quoting from Genesis one twenty-seven. And then he goes on he quotes from Genesis 2.24. and verses 7 and 8, he says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So again, Jesus is going back and he is... Uh, Foundationally, fundamentally going back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis because he's sensing you guys are way far off course. So we need to go all the way back to the beginning. Uh, let's set you straight. And once he does that, he um, points out, I want to point out four things that I see that Jesus is uh, highlighting with these quotes from Genesis one twenty seven and 2.24. He points out, first of all, the unambiguous genders that are included in this group right and uh, perhaps that wasn't what was most obvious to the people that were first receiving this instruction from jesus but in our day and age i think we have to know that this is a great place to go to to point to this also matthew 19 is a, a parallel passage i think there's even more detail in matthew 19 but we see Absolutely, the unambiguous genders that Jesus is referring to here in these verses. So he says that God made them male and female, right? One man and one woman. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. So we see here that there are two heteronormative cisgendered couples, right? Using our, our common vernacular for the day. Heteronormative cisgendered. It's just a a normal man and a normal woman. And it's not just the one. He says that a man leaves his father and mother, right? So uh, old traditional household where he has a mom and a dad and they're married. He leaves them and he is joined to his wife. Uh, This is how God made them. God doesn't make mistakes then. He doesn't make mistakes now. And the entire transgender movement is really based on the, the fundamentally flawed premise that God messes up. Uh, you'll hear people all the time say, well, I'm, I was just born in the wrong body, right? I'm a man in a woman's body, or a woman in a man's body, or I'm, I'm somewhere in between. But that all presupposes the fact that God kind of made a mistake somewhere along the way, right? Whereas, instead, we should presuppose what God has already told us, that, as we already mentioned this morning, that we are uh, fundamentally flawed beings, right? That we are uh, totally depraved, mind, body, and soul. In all of our uh, affections, our our thinking is flawed. The heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Who can know? Who can grasp it? Um, this is where we should start when we're dealing with these issues. These are really real issues with people who are struggling with these things, and um, we should address it from a, a biblical perspective rather than a perspective that questions uh, God and how well He is. Created us. The second thing that we can see here is the purpose for the union, why it is that God has brought man and woman together. It says, "For the two are to be joined together, and they are to be one." Uh, over in Matthew 19 verse 5, it says, "Whoa, I'm going on the wrong page here." It says that for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That's where we get the, the classic line of leaving and cleaving. You leave your your father and mother and you cleave to your new spouse. Uh, this speaks of being bound together or glued or cemented together. That you are theirs. You are uh, cleaving to them. You are being joined to them. There's an a aspect of permanency that's here to be joined together. The two becoming one. Speaking of absolute union between Uh, the the man and the woman. They are inextricably tied together. They are one flesh. Uh, Ephesians 5.31 speaks of marriage as a a mystery that pictures the relationship that Jesus has with his church, that Jesus has with the bride of Christ, the church. And it says in Ephesians 5.31 through 33, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and "...shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." Same verse we just read, right? Quoting from uh, Genesis. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. He calls that a mystery. Something that was not revealed in the Old Testament. That's now revealed in the New Testament. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself. And the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. So... Again, showing the fact that our marriage is a picture of the relationship of Jesus and his church. That was a a mystery, a thing that we can't really fully grasp. But that speaks to the the fundamental importance of marriage, to the sanctity of this uh, gift that God has given to not just Christians. This is a a common grace that God has shown to even unbelievers. And it is being... uh, perverted in our society just as it was being perverted in their society by saying yeah you can divorce a woman because she doesn't make your dish well because she doesn't look as good as you think she ought to look and Jesus was coming up against this saying no that's not okay alright going on we also see the, the number of participants here is being identified as Jesus says that one man is to be joined with one woman in the beginning, in the garden, God made only one man, and out of that one man, he made for that one man one woman so Adam didn't have a, a bunch of extras he didn't have a, a lineup of women that he got to choose from right he didn't go on some kind of speed dating show or game show where he got to choose between a number of women and, and Eve was the the lucky woman, the lucky woman right the The Bachelorette or whatever uh, he made one man and one woman. He didn't create a, a spare man for Eve in case she decided that uh, Adam didn't pick up his socks or something, that she was not happy with the way that he was performing his tasks and duties as a husband. Uh, that's outside of God's design. And joy, Jesus points to this as a template for marriage. Going back to Genesis, back to the beginning. Um, and all this precludes uh, Polygamy or uh, polyandry where one woman will take multiple husbands or uh, polyamory. All these different uh, perversions of marriage are uh, precluded from Jesus pointing back and saying, no, that's not how it was in the beginning. In the beginning, God made one man and one woman. People will often say, well, Jesus never spoke about uh, homosexuality. He never condemned these other uh, perverse understandings of, of marriage or sexuality. Again, point back here. Mark 10, Matthew 19. Uh, he he spoke to it. And yeah, it was in the, the context of divorce, but uh, he spoke to it nonetheless. Um, let me see. I'm going to go off script here a little bit and share with you if I can find it. Uh, a question that I asked uh chat gpt yesterday uh, which is kind of scary oh alright here it is I said what would Jesus say about pride month just sitting around um, not really have much to do and it says as an AI language model it is not within my capacity to definitely know what Jesus would say about pride month however based on his teachings of love compassion and acceptance it could be inferred that Jesus would encourage individuals to treat everyone with kindness respect and respect regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity he taught people to love one another without prejudice judgment or discrimination and would likely celebrate and support those who chose to celebrate pride month as a means of expressing their identity and finding acceptance within their community and then i said didn't he teach that a man was to leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife It says, yes, Jesus did teach that a man should leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Matthew 19.5, it even cited the verse. But it is important to note that the context of this teaching was in response to a question about divorce. That must completely erase everything else, right? All the other implications. Jesus was emphasizing the importance of commitment and faithfulness in marriage rather than arguing against or condemning other forms of relationship. Moreover, Jesus' message of love and acceptance extends to all individuals, regardless of their sexual orientation, whatever, whatever. All right, and then I asked one more question because I'm allowed three a day based on the app that I got. And I said, is it compassionate or dignifying to allow someone to continue in their sin without calling them to repentance? And it says, as an AI language model, I can provide an objective response without taking any side. I doubt that. And it says, <laughs> however, it is important to note that the definition of sin is is subjective and can vary based on cultural and religious beliefs. It is also important to remember that individuals have the right to make their own choices and live according to their own beliefs. And I'm not going to continue reading you AI garbage, but uh, the fact that this took place within the context of divorce doesn't negate the fact that Jesus was taking them back to the roots of Genesis and showing them the foundation of God creating one man and one woman. Uh, That's relevant in uh, our understanding of sexuality—it's also relevant in our understanding of divorce, which is why Jesus brought it to their attention. Um, well, I put there First Corinthians six fifteen through sixteen. We actually won't look at that today, but that's a good cross-reference for you to point down. That's where uh, Paul talks about our bodies being joined to uh, a prostitute—is uh, even those two are forming a, a one-flesh union. Uh, the last thing I want to point out is the intended duration. Uh, we see at the, the end of this section, where am I at? Back up in nine, right? What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. So there's a, a reason for our traditional marriage vows to include the phrase, till death do us part, it's because that was part of God's design. Uh, God's design for marriage is that it lasts for a lifetime, not for Time and eternity—we'll get there in chapter twelve, right? But for this lifetime, uh, we are to be married to each other. It's not a union that should be separated by man, but only by God through the means of death. Uh, Jesus does offer one exemption for marital infidelity. He does that in Matthew five and in Matthew nineteen. Uh, I'll get Matthew five if somebody else could make their way to Matthew nineteen. Matthew five thirty-two says. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. In Matthew 19, 9, what does that say? And I say to you, whoever divorces his
1: wife, except for immorality, and marries another woman, commits
0: adultery. Alright, so Jesus does offer that one exception. Uh, Paul also adds to that in 1 Corinthians 7, he talks about Uh, abandonment being another legitimate reason for divorce uh john Grasmick says that moses acknowledged the presence of divorce in israel but he did not institute or authorize it then i really like what he goes on to say he says that marriage is to be a monogamous i spelled that wrong heterosexual permanent one flesh relationship Uh, that's very succinct and says a lot and it used to be that controversial, but it certainly is today. But that's something that we need to stand on if we're going to uh, hold to what Jesus taught. All right, uh, going on looking at verses ten through twelve, we see that this public conversation now becomes a, a private conversation. Remember that recently Jesus has uh, shifted his ministry to focus more on uh, pouring into the twelve and training the twelve and getting them prepared for his departure rather than public ministry. But uh, this first section, it was a a public teaching. Now we see a shift to this scenery within a a private house in verses 10 through 12, where the disciples further questioned Jesus. It says in verse 10 that, In the house the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. So Jesus here is speaking to the twelve. and He speaks even more plainly than he did before and tells them that divorce and remarriage constitutes adultery. And by, by organizing scripture and by understanding it as a whole, piecing it together and uh, looking at this uh, exemption clause that we just looked at in Matthew 5 and uh, chapter 19, we can see that um, this is really speaking of illegitimate divorce and remarriage uh, constituting adultery. There are others. There are those exceptions that I just referenced. We also want to notice here that Mark mentions both the man and the woman who divorce as and and remarry as being culpable and guilty of this adultery. Yes.
1: I've, I've always believed here it ties the. The divorce and the remarriage together, both both of those sentences. Mm-hmm. And to me, the ideal has always been what you were talking about earlier: The guy that thinks he finds a better-looking woman, or mm-hmm. and the woman finds a guy that's got more money, or whatever. I mean, the ideal to divorce this person because you're going to marry this person. Yep. It's, it's, you can't. You don't just trade up.
0: Yeah, it seems to be what Moses. Understanding was back in Deuteronomy 24. So here, uh, I'll get you in a little bit. So here, um, Mark includes the woman in this, whereas Matthew didn't include the woman, and it's kind of interesting because Matthew omits this reference. But Mark, who is writing to the Romans, is writing to a society where the women had the right to divorce. They had that right in Rome. They could initiate that divorce, whereas. Matthew, who was writing to the Jews in Jerusalem, or in Israel rather, they didn't have the right to uh, initiate divorce. So that's where the distinction is there. And then we also know from uh, Matthew 19.10 that this explanation helped the disciples to understand, to better understand the gravity of marriage. So it says in 19.10 that the disciples said to Jesus on the heels of this statement, well, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, then it is better not to marry. And so that means, okay, well, they're, they're having a higher understanding of marriage than what Rabbi Hillel had, or this other rabbi Akiva, or whatever his name was, uh, which is good, but they're taking a little bit too far, saying, well, we, we should not get married at all. So Jesus says in Matthew 19, 11, that not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. So he's not teaching uh, not to be married, just as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, that that's okay for some, but that's not the the standard, that's not the ideal. And so we also ought to have a a high view of marriage, Uh, again, realizing that it pictures Christ's relationship with his church, um, realizing that it has been devalued in our society, and that it uh, is um, definitely, it was devalued then, definitely devalued now. We need to strive to preserve and elevate and and cultivate a a sanctified institutional marriage in a crooked and depraved universe.